I have, I have to be honest. I, I make jokes about food regularly um, because I really like food. And so I've got to be really honest. Some people knew I liked chocolate chip cookies. So the, at a birthday not too long ago. And so someone brought a whole tub of cookie dough to my house. Um, now, I have to be honest with you. The, the good news of that is I don't have to do what I've done previously. So occasionally I'll decide I really want chocolate chip cookies like right now. And so I've learned that because of trial and error, I don't really want to go to the time to make all the dough. I know that's sacrilegious to some of you. Um, I want the dough already made. And so I tried Dollar General because it's close to my house. They don't have it. Um, then I went to Westco. They also don't have pre-made cookie dough. And so I ended up at a grocery store 10 minutes away from my house. Why? Because they had dough ready to go and I didn't have to go to like Walmart or Meyer because this is really big and takes a lot of time. But, but maybe you're like me. You want something so badly, so desperately that you will go because you want it now. I mean, had I like planned in advance, I could have bought it at the grocery store the last time. That would have made much more sense or asked my wife to put it on the grocery list or something. But instead, I wanted it right that minute. And so I drove over 20 minutes, uh, really more like 30 minutes by the time it was all said and done, just to buy cookie dough so I could throw it in the oven and eat it. And my wife says, you don't even cook it. It's just dough warmed up. It's the best way to have it. But have you ever been like that? You want something so badly, so desperately, you don't want to wait for it. I know I'm the only one that's impatient. None of you are ever impatient. I mean, you never are irritated in the drive-thru line. You are never irritated with traffic on the highway because they're driving too slow and they're in the passing lane. You've never been upset by that. You never think Michigan's the worst state at times because there's construction in every single lane. I don't even know how you're supposed to go anywhere sometimes in the summer, right? I mean, these are real things for us. All right, so one of the things I've noticed to be true is that in our impatience, we miss opportunities. In our hurrying, we miss opportunities. So, so here's an example. Sometimes if you're in such a hurry to get somewhere that on the way you'll miss the beauty of the drive. Have you ever done that? You've been in such a hurry. Like, I've driven to someplace in such a hurry to get there, and on the way home, I was like, oh, man, I missed all this the first time. I didn't know it was here. See, I think because we are so impatient, we miss opportunities that are in front of us all the time, whether it's with our family or our friends or whatever. In fact, because we're so impatient, we sometimes miss opportunities for God to speak into our lives or in our impatience. We become so frustrated that things aren't happening on our timetable. And we're not sure what we believe anymore. And that's really the reality that Peter writes this letter in 2 Peter chapter 3. He's summarizing his letter in this chapter. And see, Jesus has come, and, and that's been true, and he was resurrected, and then he said, I'll be back. And people are like, all right. You're not back yet. Like, you said this generation wouldn't pass away. He's like, yeah, but I was talking about the destruction of the temple, and that actually happened in 70 AD. And they're like, yeah, but you're not back yet. And so what began to happen in the early church is people were like, well, you know what? He's not really coming back. He didn't really mean it. Maybe he wasn't even really real. And people began to wrestle, and they're like, well, I mean, he said he was going to restore and redeem and make all things new, but it pretty much looks like the same old, same old right now. I'm not seeing anything new. I'm not seeing this redemption of all things. It looks like the way the world has always been. And this is what Peter is addressing in his letter. 
here's what Peter writes, beginning in verse three. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, Since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you've been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Now, maybe you're like me, and if you're not careful, you'll miss the breadth of the scripture because you see the tree and not the forest. Because there are enough things in there, you're like, oh, and you maybe got sidetracked by this one thing in this text, and you're like, well, that, and you can't escape it, because I think that's where we're tempted to live. So Peter begins in this verse 40, he says, well, many people say, well, where is he? If he's really coming back, why have we not seen him yet? And what Peter's trying to point out through his little, like, kind of narrative here, and he does it in his other chapters in this letter, and in his last letter as well, is that he believes history is going that from the creation of the world onward, there is a trajectory to life. It has a direction. It is going. It is history goes somewhere. It is not absent of a plan. It is that God is at work in the midst of the world, redeeming and restoring. And eventually, there will be the renewal of all things. Now, I know some of you are like, well, you're talking about this renewal, this redemption, but did you just see what Peter wrote there? He said stuff's going to be burned up by fire. Yes, and that's the only verse in the entire New Testament that says that. But maybe we should think about what fire meant in the ancient world for just a split second before we think God's going to burn all this stuff up. Fire in the ancient world was representative of refinement. 
how you cleanse stuff. You purified them through fire, right? It's why you see in movies where someone will like get a knife and they'll they stop someone from bleeding. They'll get a knife and they put it in the fire first to purify it from what they're going to use it for next. What he's trying to say is this. Yes, there will be a day when God does redeem and restore but here's the way fire works. It cleans stuff. It refines it. It makes it holy. It lays it bare so we see it for what it really is. In fact, the Holy Spirit's defined as fire often in the New Testament, a picture of God's doing his work in us, of refining you and I and others. But the key to this text, I think, is actually in verses 8 and 9. Peter says, Don't you know God's patient? Don't you know that time doesn't work for him like it works for you and I? To him, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. I mean, I've had days that felt like a thousand years and you probably have too. But I can't really comprehend the idea that that time is irrelevant. That's beyond my capabilities and honestly, probably beyond yours as well. But if God isn't bound by time the way you and I are, then we sometimes have to think about time differently. But he... Peter goes on to say, God doesn't want anyone to perish. No one, ever, anywhere, at all. Peter makes it abundantly clear God wants all people to know the depth of his love seen in his son, Jesus. So God's delay in returning, isn't he forgot? Oh, where is he? He's not coming. No, maybe it's the reality of God's mercy. God's not impatient like you and I, but he is patient. Did you know today there are more Christians in the world than there's ever been in human history? Or two billion people claim to be a Christian today. Nearly one-third of the world's population. But that still leaves two-thirds that don't claim to know Jesus. That's kind of a problem, right? You know, the prayer we pray often, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this prayer desperately longing for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. But it's also a prayer in which we begin to reflect in our own heart. And we say, God, forgive us our sins and help us to forgive others. Oh, not that part too. Help us to trust you for this day. What we're praying is, God, we want to not only see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, but we want to live as people with your heart for people because you have no enemies. Well, you love all people. And you're calling us to have no enemies but to love them too. Are you sure? So what I'm going to say next might bother some of you, and that's okay. It sometimes does. Um, I don't want Jesus to come back yet. I don't. It's not because, like, I don't long for a day when all the wrongs are made right, because I do. It's not because I don't want the renewal or the restoration of all things. I do. It's not because I don't want a day where there's no more pain and no more sorrow and no more tears, as John writes, because I I long for that. And it's not even because I want to live my best life now and wait until I'm old. Although that's reasonable, I suppose. Because the more I think we seek after the heart of God, the more we begin to see his heart in this day. And we go, wait a minute. If at best only one-third of the world knows Jesus, 
That means there's still two-thirds of God. They don't know the depth of God's love. They don't know that in the person of Jesus, he says, hey, listen, do you want to know how much your father loves you? Enough that not even death itself can contain my love. Not even death will keep you separated from me. Do you know how much I love you? I'll show you that I'll go to the place that seems to be so God-forsaken so that you can know there is no place in life, in this world, that is God-forsaken. This is how much I love you. This is the depth of love. And so it's not, not that I don't want Jesus to return, because someday I, I, I honestly hope it's not in my lifetime, and not because I don't look forward to it, because I want things to go okay. Because what Peter's saying is the heart of God. And so what if we even shifted our perspective for some of us? Not that we don't want Jesus to return, but we, not yet. We want your mercy to be seen. We want to be people of mercy. We want all people to know you. And so God, if we can wait and we can be your witnesses in this world, then so be it. We'll wait and we'll weather whatever a storm may look like for the sake of those that don't yet know. So even Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, I become all all things for the sake, all people, I know you. The shifting in our perspective is less about us and more about others. And this is what Peter's trying to get us to understand. And so it's verse 9. Again, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Repentance just means to turn, to change our mind, to see Right, and then Peter's really using kind of colorful language. I don't mean colorful like offensive. I mean like creative language. And he's trying to paint a picture um, about what God is doing in the world. And so he uses this kind of illustration of, of fire. And John Calvin, among others, talks about how in this moment, so often we go, oh, blowing stuff up. No, no, that's not what he's saying. What he's really asking, what he's trying to get us to, is the place where we begin to see what would it look like if God refined your life? How do you look in terms of being holy and godly? How is that for you? And so it's not that this chapter is so much a roadmap to the end, but a wake-up call of how to live. In other words, when you are laid bare, when you're clearly seen by others, how are you going to be seen? As Calvin and others have pointed out, if people are trying to give you a roadmap to the end, be wary because they're usually missing the point. What if, what if, what if Peter's goal here is to get his readers, his hearers of this, to seek after a life of holiness? Use the word righteousness, or in other words, to be in right relationship with God. Use the words holy and godly. What if that's really the goal? And one scholar commenting on the section said it this way. He said, if we are not careful, we can be blinded by sin, and then sin tempts us to change the truth of Scripture to match our behavior instead of submitting our behavior to the truth. Comes back to the question again and again and again. What shapes us? And then we see Peter does point out what Jesus often said to his disciples, we see John writes in Revelation, he says this in verse 13, there will be a day where there will be a new heaven and a new earth. God will redeem, God will restore, 
and I will make all right. See, verse 17 is kind of this weird verse as well. It kind of points out this idea that there's some stuff that's kind of confusing at times. We go, well, I mean, am I going to fall away or what? You know, he says don't fall away. Well, what if he's really saying not necessarily fall away? Like sometimes we think about, so I did lose my keys a few weeks ago. They're gone. We cannot find them. I'm going to have to buy new ones. It is miserable. So expensive to get a new key for a car now. They're gone. Our salvation is not like losing our keys. And just like sit it down somewhere and go, well, can't find it. Because God doesn't love me anymore. Sometimes I think it's what we think about, that we think it's so, God's so fickle that in our relationship with him, he's like ready to turn his back on us at any moment. What Peter's trying to get across here is, listen, God's not gonna willfully turn from you, but you may choose to walk away from him. But not because he's not pursuing you and desiring to be in a relationship with you. It's not like losing my keys. It's a bad analogy. If you use that analogy, yeah, I'd be really fearful. Peter's trying to say is you will seek after this godly life, after being holy and godly, this life of holiness, this life of being transformed by the work of Jesus, then you don't have to live worried about the future. You don't have to live worried about what may or may not happen. In fact, I love this quote from one scholar as he talks about G.K. Chesterton. He says it this way. G.K. Chesterton once said that orthodoxy was like walking, I'll just stop. Orthodoxy just means right thinking, right belief, right understanding. It was like walking along a narrow, <clears throat> narrow ridge. One step to either side was a step to disaster. Jesus is God and man. God is love and holiness. Christianity is grace and morality. The Christian lives in this world, in the world of eternity. Overstress either side of these great two-sided truths, and at once destructive heresy emerges. One of the most tragic things in life is when a person twists Christian truth and Holy Scripture into an excuse and even a reason for doing what he, she wants to do, instead of taking them as guides for doing what God wants him or her to do. So Peter has been clear in all his writing, both these letters. He wants to make sure that we're following after the right things. We're listening with the right ears. We're seeking to live the right he wants us to know again and again, like, don't you know that God is merciful? Don't you know that Jesus loves you? Don't you know that there's a way to live that leads to life? Don't you know? Haven't you heard? And if you haven't, he's like, oh, then listen, please. There is a better way to live. He's also been clear in other, other parts. It doesn't mean you aren't going to have problems in life. Because you will. But it means you'll begin to know what it's like when God is present in the midst of that problem. So what are you and I supposed to do? We'll come back to the question, what's shaping our life? So I did a funeral yesterday for Bonnie Twining, and, and um, one of my favorite things in talking with the family this week, and I mentioned it yesterday in the service, was there was this moment where, where Todd's telling me about how she really wasn't a great Bible reader. Like, it just didn't make sense to her, and she didn't really get it, and, and it was just hard, and, and she's not alone. I have that conversation with many of you on a regular basis. He talked about how her, over these last few years, though, her prayer life really began to grow. And he talked about the way that some of the church Bible studies or a group she'd been in or a small group had really shaped her and been helpful to her. And I said, well, what you're articulating is this, and this is why the community of faith matters so much in our faith formation. What you're articulating is that her life is a reflection of the reality that, that songs and sermons 
and the community of faith can be the foundation of our spiritual formation. That's why a weekly gathering, even more than that, is a good thing. Because on our own, we're not really sure where to go. On our own, we'll do what Peter begins to warn us about. Be careful you don't go the wrong direction. Be careful you're not living in your own unique way. Be careful that you don't misunderstand the character and nature of God. Be careful that you don't focus on one side or the other or begin to say phrases like this become true. People say you'll become so heavenly-minded that you do no earthly good. When people talk about salvation and they think it's just about going to heaven, they miss the fullness of the gospel. Miss it. Borderline heresy, it really is. It misses the depth of God's work in our lives in this world. It's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here's just three things that I think are helpful um, from this text. I'm going to try to summarize the whole thing in three lines. Wait. Wait, be patient. Jesus will come again. The world will be made right. Be patient. The world will be made right. Watch. Stay the course. Trust the word of Jesus. Don't lose And then the last section Peter writes that I think is helpful for us. Work. Right at the end, he says, grow in grace and knowledge. Right? One of our values here is intentional growth. We don't think it happens by accident. So if we use Bonnie as an example, she participated in the community of faith. She was active in her own faith. She spent time in prayer, and she allowed others to help shape her to grow. It requires intentionality. Grow in grace and knowledge. Don't be stagnant. Don't stay where you are. And it's never too late. So one of my favorite stories these past several weeks um, wasn't a witness of. I just heard about after. So Pastor Hollywood to visit with someone who is 88 years old and um, told they've got X amount of time to live and cancer in their bones. And so... She's meeting with this person, and uh, his name's Ernie, and, uh, and she, she was really nervous about the conversation on the front end. Like, she's called, like, hey, what do I say? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I just trust God's spirit, and, like, here's some things I might talk about. And, and so she shows up, and, and she texts me after and said, it went well. I'm like, that's it? Like, that's all I get? Like, tell me more than that. Like, I don't know what that means. And so she starts texting, and I'm, I get a little misty-eyed, and I hear about it the next day. And so basically she shows up and she's talking to Ernie and she says, Ernie, like basically, you know God loves you, right? Well, I heard this as a kid and I felt like I had this moment in life and I, I could pick him or go the other way and I kind of chose the other way. She's like, Ernie, it's never too late to be a new creation. Well, you mean 88 I can be a new creation? Yeah. Who knew? 88 years old. Ernie decided to dedicate whatever days he has left to the Lord. <laughs> he was even talking about getting baptized. I said, hey, we can figure that out. It's never too late. Because God's patience is beyond our comprehension. And so for some of us who long for a world to be made right, we've asked the question, what shapes us? 
in these days, I want to just give a challenge. Let's make sure we're more shaped by the words of Jesus, by his community of faith, than we are by news or politics or social media or anything else. Make sure the thing that shapes us the most is the person of Jesus. Make sure his words shape our life more than anything else. And so I guess I would end this with just three Really, three words. It's actually four because there's a word in there, but but three that I want you to remember. Patient persistence is power. Patient persistence is power. It really can change your life. Father, will you help us today as we pray to leave this place? We would recognize more and more that you come near, that you desire for us to know the depth of your love and your hope and your grace and your mercy. And so, Father, I pray today that you would help us to seek you in all things. We wouldn't find ourselves drawn one direction or the other, but we would just continue to seek after you, to live a holy and godly life, to know that there's this desire you have for us to grow in grace and knowledge, and that that would be true. And so, Father, we do trust this moment and every moment to you. And we find ourselves wondering if it's too late. And we know even Ernie's, Ernie's story illustrates for us, it is never too late for your grace, for your love, and for us to recognize that your mercy, your mercy goes beyond our comprehension. And you're patient because you desire for none of us to perish but to know you. And so may we live in such a way that the whole world may come to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name.